Hello, everyone. I'm Paul Menzel. And I'm Jim Conlon. And this is New Tricks for Old Dogs. Our podcast features the many ways us older folks howl at the moon, odd news items you don't normally hear about, and conversations with other old dogs who are growing bolder, not older. So if you've got 25 minutes or so, grab a cup of coffee, pull up a chair, and join us. In this episode, the old dogs ramble about complaining. We remind our listeners that weird cures for pandemics are nothing new. We bring the good news that kindness is a fundamental human trait. We divulge research that seems to prove being a couch potato isn't healthy. Who knew? We report on a Taiwanese couple who got famous by posing in the clothes left in their laundry business. And we share evidence that humans may have been in the new world longer than we thought, based on a 14,000-year-old stool sample. The Old Dog's conversation is with Elaine Adams, a lady who says that watching birds has helped her understand humanity. Stay with us. Paul, I got a question for you. Oh, yeah. Do you ever complain? And if so, why and when? Uh, hmm. Yes and no. I will not complain in a restaurant. Uh, I will not ask to see the manager. I won't make a scene. I just won't go back to that restaurant. Mm Mm-hmm. On the other hand, if I am being helped in a service capacity, let's say a, a cashier, if they're behaving stupidly and wasting my time, yeah, I might complain to them. How what, about do you, you? what do you mean by stupidly? Give me an example. Well, if they're saying, oh, darn, this isn't working right. Uh, gee, that should be ringing up. Let me call the manager. <laughs> and, that's, and that's usually when I say, no, 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 let me call the manager. <laughs> well, yeah, I have a history of complaining when I was much. And I'm not surprised, Jim. <laughs> no, uh, and especially about you, Paul, but th- that's behind me. Uh, no, when I was much younger, I used to complain more. Now I very seldom do. I just sort of bitch at home, grouse at home to my wife. Uh, uh, but uh, there are times when I really get upset enough to want to complain, and uh, I kind of think that I have reason, too. I'll tell it specifically. I was in Target this morning, and uh, I was in the produce section, and there was a Target employee stocking produce right next to me and didn't have a mask on. I complained to the manager about that. That's the first time in quite a long time that I did. Okay. So are there some places that won't have you back? I'm just curious. <laughs> uh, so I haven't gotten any notification, no. Uh, well, you know what? I, I think it is probably human nature for people of our generation uh, that we not be complainers. Am I taking on the responsibility of speaking for the whole generation? Yeah, as usual, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Somebody has to. Uh, no, I, I think it's... We we were raised to be polite, uh, unlike our grandchildren, and <laughs> and so even if we are in a situation that's uncomfortable or we feel that we're getting bad service, our tendency is to not say anything out loud, um, but just not return to that place of business again. What do you think? Well, yeah, but on the other hand, I think that because we were raised not to make a fuss or to be polite and all of that, we sometimes feel like, you know what? I'm just being too much of a weenie here. I've got to speak up about this. 
And I think that we should. Yeah, but I usually have that feeling after I left the store. Yeah, I'll tell you what I should have <laughs> said. Yeah, really. You know, it, it's probably handy to write down some of those comebacks <laughs> so you could refer to them uh, from time to time if somebody is uh, rubbing you wrong. Just a second. Let me get my notebook. <laughs> <laughs> then you can give them a proper put down, you know? <laughs> An authoritative voice prescribing a questionable cure for a pandemic is not unique to modern times. This item is from the Smithsonian Magazine Online, dated June 5th, 2020. The authoritative voice was Sir Isaac Newton. The date was 1669, and the pandemic was the bubonic plague. The most recent outbreak in England had taken 100,000 lives. There was much speculation about a cure for the disease, and Newton had his own version. You start by hanging a toad upside down in a chimney for three days. The toad is ready when it croaks. Oh. Sorry, Jim, I couldn't resist that. Mm. It gets better. The next step, grind up the toad into a powder and mix it with the contents of its stomach. Step three, form the mixture into lozenges. And step four, place the mixture about the infected area. Uh, Newton suggested that the lozenges would draw out the poison from the disease. We don't know if anyone followed Newton's prescription. It seems, uh, you think, a bit extreme, and I'm sure most toads would share that opinion. But remember, this was an age when medicines frequently included varieties of human fluids mm. as well as those of sundry animals. <laughs> it's also good to remember that the life expectancy in the 17th century was about 35 years due in part to the state of medicine in the 17th century. Yeah. I guess the lesson learned is to take your health advice from the people best qualified to give that advice, which should rule out TV personalities, athletes, movie stars, and politicians. And probably mathematicians from the 17th century. Eh? And possibly old dogs as well. Kindness may be a survival strategy for human beings. If so, let's hope we can survive this election year. This pod nugget is from the Associated Press. It appeared in Amarillo Globe News for July 3, 2020. Research shows that acts of kindness make us feel better and healthier. Psychologist Michael McCullough, in his new book, Kindness of Strangers, suggests that kindness is as bred into our bones as anger, lust, or grief. It is a feature of human beings we often take for granted. Anthropologist Oliver Curry believes the reason we are kind to each other is because we are social animals. We prize kindness over other values. Under the right circumstances, we all benefit from kindness. It's a tool for assuring the survival of the species. Now, this seems like an extension of the old golden rule. If we are kind to strangers, maybe someday they will be kind to us. In practice, being kind isn't that calculating. It just feels good to be helpful. I have to agree that I've often benefited from the kindness of strangers. When walking around a strange city, I rely on strangers for directions, which often turn into suggestions for restaurants or other points of interest. I don't believe they are necessarily thinking about the survival of the species at the time, but they are certainly being kind. On the other hand, you take those same kind people and put them in a car during rush hour, and they seem determined to bring about the extinction of the species. That's a good point. When it comes to losing weight, 
Our natural body response to lost pounds is to put them back on. In other words, our bodies demand the missing pounds of flesh. <laughs> this item is from the New York Times for July 24, 2020. The process is called homeostasis, and it refers to the way that our bodies like to keep things the way they have been. Anyone who has lost weight only to put pounds back on has experienced homeostasis. Some Swedish researchers speculated that bone cells sense the body's pressure against the earth. So, I'm sorry. So, a normally <laughs> active adult that spends time on their feet is sending an accurate picture of their weight to your brain. Those same researchers wondered if immobility fools the body into thinking it weighs less than it does. In this case, since you're not on your feet, your brain senses that you've lost weight. So homeostasis kicks in and your appetite increases. Hmm. Now, if you've ever had a period of being a couch potato, you probably experienced the urge to reach for a bag of potato chips. Yep. To test this theory, they recruited 69 overweight adults and asked them to wear weighted vests throughout the day. Some of the vests added 11% of body weight, others added only 1% and served as a control. The men and women with the heavier vests lost an average of 3 pounds, while the control group's weight loss was negligible. The broad implication is that you need to stand and move more in order for your body to sense your true weight and not increase your appetite. So if I understand the study correctly, to lose weight, you need to be active and eat less. What a novel concept. It'll never catch on. They're in their 80s. They own a laundry in Taiwan, and they have become Instagram stars for posing in clothes left behind by customers. This pod nugget is from the New York Times for July 24th, 2020. Chang Wanji and Xu Shou'er have been married for over 60 years. He's 83, she's 84, and together they own Wancho Laundry in central Taiwan. Over the years, customers have left behind hundreds of garments. The orphan clothing took up a lot of space, but they thought they should hang on to them in case their owners showed up. They didn't know what else to do with them. Business had slowed down during the coronavirus pandemic, and the couple had a lot of time on their hands and nowhere to go. They were staying close to their business to avoid catching the virus. Their grandson noticed how bored they were, and he came up with an idea that finally got some use out of the abandoned clothes. He had them dress up in various outfits in front of their business and posted the pictures on Instagram. The clothing combinations are certainly creative and eclectic. The couple has gotten in the spirit by assuming the attitude of professional models. They can be seen in matching laced sneakers, curiously put-together outfits topped with jaunty caps and hats. There was something about the couple's fun attitude that attracted viewers. Since they started posting pictures in late June, they've attracted 136,000 followers. The couple has no desire to capitalize on their growing fame, although Mr. Chung adds that he would be happy if the many people who left their clothes behind would drop by and pay their bills. And you know what? A customer that left behind clothes a year ago saw the couple on local news and came by to pick up his clothes and pay the bill. You know, I think I saw them modeling one of your outfits, Paul. It was a... <laughs> it could well be. I have a lot of mismatched clothing. It was a Duluth t-shirt. <laughs> 
Archaeologists have always been fascinated by evidence of the earliest humans in North America. And now the earliest date has been established by a 14,000-year-old stool sample. Who knew? This pod nugget is from the Smithsonian Magazine Online, dated July 28, 2020. For most of the 20th century, the most solid evidence of the earliest humans in North America were the Clovis points, projectile points chipped out of various kinds of stone. These early weapons have been found over most of North America and parts of South America and date from 12 to 13,000 years ago. In 2007, a team of archaeologists exploring the Paisley Cave in Oregon found evidence of earlier human habitation. The evidence was several samples of preserved ancient human dung. <laughs> the elegant term for these samples is coprolites, and they were carbon-14 dated to be older than 14,000 years. Uh, there was no way to prove that the coprolites were actual human stool samples until recently. A team from the University of Newcastle, tracking the lipid biomarkers in the samples, were able to prove that 13 of the samples were human. Now, evidence of the earliest humans in the Western Hemisphere is a moving target. Recent excavations in a cave in Mexico produced some artifacts that may push the date of human occupation to 26,000 years ago. Mm. But for now, the coprolites from the Paisley Cave in Oregon are the oldest proof of human occupation. Further study of their droppings gives us some idea of the diet of these early American cave dwellers. Apparently, dinner consisted of seeds, plants, and rodents, in addition to the occasional mammoths. Given the, popula yum, yum. <laughs> given the popularity of the paleo diet, maybe the next fad will be with the Paisley Cave diet. I think I'll stick with my modern options without the rodent protein. Well, that won't be the full diet. <laughs> you might say this episode's subject, Elaine Adams, is a rare birder because her lifelong hobby has been bird watching. As a birder, she's traveled all over the countryside of North and South America. To support her hobby, she has had some fascinating careers over the years. She was a professional singer in church choirs, a music teacher in a Texas school system, and a vintner. Hear all of this and more in Elaine's story. Elaine, to get us started, you have had a, a fascinating life. Can you just give us a quick overview, uh, starting with when you were studying opera in college? When I was a kid going to college, my mother would meet me in Dallas at the Metropolitan Operas, and we would go to uh, Neiman's. And I remember being on the escalator with her, and she said to me, Elaine, you can have all of this if you married a wealthy man. Well, looking at my career choices as an opera singer or marrying a doctor, it became clear that probably marrying a doctor was the better way to go. So um, I married a, a medical student uh, who came here to Houston in 1959. And I was a teacher in Fort Bend Independent School District and taught music. It was when he was in medical school and between um, times when I was teaching that I became really, really interested in birding. After we came back here, uh, I, I began really birding hard. Uh, the children were in school, so that let me uh, have plenty of time. And I started 
a, a bird watching tour group and took people all over the United States and to Mexico and Costa Rica and um, had a wonderful time birding. In my second marriage, when my parents died, my husband and I uh, went to Oklahoma where I had a section of land, 640 acres, and we decided to plant a wine vineyard. And we planted um, over 3,000 vines, Merlot, Cabernet Sauvignon, um, Sauvignon Blanc. And for a while, we vetted our own wine, and then we started selling it. So we did that 14 years. And that worked out really well until one day we looked around and realized that we were old and this was really hard work. And the children came and said, Mom, you need to sell the land. And so we sold the land and came back to Houston. So that's kind of where I am now. Do you have any wine left over? Just asking. <laughs> <laughs> Elaine, you have a long history as a birder, looking for rare birds, unusual birds. Uh, tell us a story okay. about one trip that you took and a particularly unusual bird that you observed. Um, I think the one that sticks in my mind, and it's not such an unusual bird, it's an Andean condor, but I was way high in the Andes uh, looking down in a valley and this huge, huge, two huge condors flying down there. And it's so otherworldly to be so high in the air with no trees and just a, a meadow kind because it's above tree line. One of the things about birding is you're walking on paths that other people have walked, uh, people of the country, and you see how the people are living. When you walk through the country, learn the country, you know what they think or how they think and how they feel and how the, how the poor people are getting along. That's why I was so interested in Cuba because I had heard so much about Cuba and how poorly they were doing, but I was impressed by how well the Cuban people were getting along. I didn't see any homeless people. I saw lots of happy children. Of course, I didn't see the inside of their of their political thing. I did go to Honduras, and I noticed in Honduras uh, that the government was not working. Military was walking around with great big guns. They stopped us all the time. The people were living in homes. It was it was very, very poor country. So you can really, as you're burning, you can also get a, uh, an idea of how the world is working. I think one of your most interesting spots was you when you landed on that island off Alaska. Can you tell us about that? That was Gamble, and, and that was in the 70s. And we took a small jet out, and there, there are no hotels, of course, so we took our bedding and our own food, mostly. And the, the community was a hunting community, and they went out in a long umiak, which is a canoe, and they would shoot a whale, which they did while we were there, and bring it in. Uh, the children all had guns, and they would shoot the birds. We had to see the birds before they shot them. 
So did you uh, sample the local cuisine? Like, uh, uh, what does whale taste like? Does it taste like chicken? <laughs> I did not. I did not taste whale. I did go into several people's homes. They also killed a walrus, and they used every bit of the walrus. Elaine, I'd like to turn back to something you mentioned early on, and that was your interest in opera. Did you ever get back to the dream you had of being involved with opera? Well, I loved to sing, and I was, uh, and I used my voice as a as a church singer. I was uh, one of the, the paid church singers at Christ Church and various other places. And the opera hired me to be educational director as we were moving into the Wortham from Jones Hall. And um, when I was at Jones Hall one night, and we were doing a really wonderful opera that had lots of color in it, and they were doing the can-can, there were two people who came in who were, who were blind. They had their dog, and they had come to the opera, but they had missed all of the beauty of the, the scenery and the costumes. So when we moved to the Wortham, I found that there was a way to talk to the people um, they wore headphones, and I could sit way high in the in the, one of the sound booths and talk to them about what I was seeing on the stage. And um, then I would go down after first intermission to ask the person how I had done because um, it, I, I didn't want to overdo. So, how are you coming on your list of birds? Well, I kind of stopped. Uh, unfortunately, uh, I need to see a bird in Wyoming, a big chicken bird. And it would cost me how much to fly to Wyoming, rent a car, and find the bird, sit, you know, in a motel. Uh, so you have to decide how much you really need to pay for each bird. <laughs> well, can can so you I, send a, can you send a bus ticket to the bird and have him come to you? <laughs> Well, do you have some trips you would like to take beside that one to see the big chicken? Um, I love to go to South and Central America. Uh, you know, I, I would love to go back to Peru. I love Peru, but there are birds there that I would love to see again or go down those rivers and, and be in the high mountains. Before I went to Cuba, I went to Belize, and that was fun and and. Um, interesting and seeing the Mayan rulings and seeing the birds flying around and knowing that they were some of the birds that those people hundreds of years knew and saw and to walk their trails that are still there. You know, I'm just sorry that that's um, maybe in the past. Elaine, we usually ask all the people we interview, do you have any advice for uh, people like us that are in the third act of their three-act play, what keeps you going? What keeps you interested in life? Oh, uh, the world. I mean, you know, and besides that, I may see one of those birds here. <laughs> so who knows? Like what you've been hearing? 
How about sharing the joy with your friends? We can always use more listeners. All our episodes are available on our website, www.olddogspodcast.com. And there are a lot more episodes on the way, so stay tuned and keep howling at the moon. <laughs>